0: There is this sort of weird thing that happens with the with the word vision where it's like implied that it's like something's comes down from the mountains, you know, in the tablets or it's just like synthesized from the ether and that, you know, I think there is this sort of magical sense that some people are just so gifted they can see the future. And no, actually, that's most of these types of things is not that. It is people looking at real evidence drawing a conclusion about where trends are going, connecting to a user need, seeing a possibility, seeing an opportunity and translating into a story that other people can rally around. So one thing I would say is anyone is capable of putting forth a vision that is going to inspire and get other people excited about it. It isn't something that you're born with. It's not like it's Steve Jobs and two other people. No, anybody can do this. And I think really what you want to be doing is you want to be telling a story around the future that you want to be in.
1: This is the Product Thinking Podcast. Here's your host, Melissa Perry. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Product Thinking Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about product leadership, and I have a guest here named Ken Norton. Ken has had an illustrious career in product management, mostly working at Google, but working in all different places on it, building a lot of the apps that you know and love. And now he's an executive coach. So welcome, Ken.
0: Thank you, Melissa. It's good to see you.
1: Yeah. Can you give our audience a little bit of your background and tell them how did you get to where you are today?
0: Yeah. I suppose it depends on how far back you want to go. I think like a lot of product folks, I have a sort of an eclectic and meandering path into doing this. I actually studied philosophy and political science in college. So my college undergraduate degree effectively had nothing to do with what I ended up doing, you'd think. Turns out it did. I graduated from college right into a recession in the early 90s and turned out I couldn't get a job doing anything in Washington, D.C. or anything that I thought I was going to do. And so I sort of fell back on what I knew how to do, which is hack around with computers and had been doing for a long time and actually got a job working the phones for Microsoft in Western New York, basically doing phone support for at the time, was Microsoft Word and Excel. And that was sort of my path into software development. And within a year or so, I had actually joined the development team. And that was the early days of the web and sort of brought my career up. Moved to San Francisco in 1996 to work for a company called CNET, which was one of the earliest web companies, one of the few pure web companies in the mid-90s. Ran software engineering teams there, became a sort of a technical leader. And then some point, and I'm not quite sure when, became a product person. And I don't know exactly when it happened. I sort of know the sort of before and I know the after, but I'm not, I'm not sure I can actually pinpoint when did I become a product manager and stop being an engineer, but it was somewhere around that point. What brought me into it was I was one of the engineers that people liked bringing into non-engineering conversations for whatever reason. They liked to drag me along to meet with salespeople, meet with marketing, meet with whatever. I had the combination of both enjoying it and no one else wanting to do that job on the engineering team. And so that's sort of what led me fundamentally down this path and became product management. Moved into various different product roles, worked at Yahoo for a long time. Eventually that brought me to a a startup company called Jotspot, which was one of the first web 2.0 interactive apps. If you think of Airtable, Notion, a lot of the sort of current generation of those types of collaborative tools. We were one of the earliest versions of that. I was VP of product there. We were acquired by Google and moved into a product role at Google where I spent uh, some 14 years working on products such as Google Docs, Google Calendar, Mobile Maps. I was in Google Ventures for a while. About 2 years ago, left Google to become a full-time executive coach.
1: That's great. Such a fun career trajectory there and I think You've worked at a lot of the companies. I feel like we talk about where good product management came from. A lot of the people that we talk about who've been doing product management the longest, they worked at Yahoo or you know, some of them were at EOL, Google, all those different places. For you, what have you observed between then and now about how product management has changed or matured?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I Well, I started writing about product management in about 2005. And part of the reason I felt Motivated to do that was I don't think anybody really understood what the job was, and I felt like i was I was sort of defending the job in some ways I was trying to make a case that really this thing should exist. you should have somebody who is between engineers and customers and users and so it it felt a little almost we were trying to make a case to even exist and a lot of my first jobs as a product manager, it did feel like no one asked me to show up and here I am and I'm supposed to help out in some way and everyone's asking like, what do you do? We've never had anybody do this before. Like, what's the point? Is this marketing? Is this product? What is this engineering? What is this? And the shift, you know, in those 20 years or so has been pretty substantial from not feeling like we have to fight for our very existence to almost, I think, a pendulum swinging very far the other direction, which is product becoming so popular Almost overly popular to the extent that so many people want to become product managers. Everyone wants to try to break in. Companies are hiring lots of product managers. And so I think the biggest shift I've seen is from sort of this nascent upstart concept that we felt like we were trying to argue for to you know now here it is. I think pretty established. People people understand that there is a role, although I think there's a lot of debate and dispute what exactly that that job does. And I think that maybe we're we've gone kind of to the other extreme, which is Everyone hires a product manager, but not everyone necessarily agrees on what that person is supposed to do.
1: Yeah, I found a similar thing when I, I started consulting in around 2014. And when I did, I originally wanted to start product management consulting, and I I kind of fell into it because a lot of people I'd worked with before called me and said, "Hey, like you're freelancing now, can you come help us? Because we don't do product management the way that you did when we worked together. Like, can you teach?" the people around me how to do it like that. And there'd be some places where, you know, I tried to further that. I liked freelancing. I liked consulting. So I said, you know, I want to go do more of this. And I get into such arguments with people that they didn't need product management and it wasn't a thing. So to me, it's almost shocking, like how fast and rapidly it changed, like you talked about. But I know I keep telling people, I'm like, people have been doing this for a very long time. It's not brand new. (laughs) Like, there's people like Ken and there's people like Marty and everybody out there has been product managers for a very long time. This isn't a brand new field, but I do think it's getting a lot more standardized.
0: Yeah, you use the word brand new and it is definitely not brand new. The word brand, this goes back to brand managers, you know, in the 1940s, 1950s at consumer packaged goods, that's sort of where product management came from. So there is a long lineage of this type of role.
1: Yeah, I love the history of how this kind of changed. And you know, one thing that we were talking about, and I'd I'd love to get your take on it. I found that people started becoming more receptive to getting product management help when Scrum became something. So we got the agile product owners. All of a sudden, you know, a lot of the companies put a bunch of product owners around Scrum. They made the Scrum teams. They put the product donors there. And then they were like, oh wait, <laughs> something's broken here. Something's not working. People are just like mindlessly looking at backlogs. We need product management. And that's How I got introduced to a bunch of companies. But a lot of that deep product management expertise that we talk about wasn't there, right? It was just very emotions and process and things like that. But that to me was like the turning point of how product management started really catching on, which kind of brings me back to what we were talking about with the brand men. A lot of it came out of marketing though, too. And I saw a lot of people come from like marketing backgrounds or other backgrounds switching into the product owner role, subject matter experts coming into the product management role but a lot of people doing it for the first time. And I get into these arguments too, I think with companies about why can't we just have a bunch of people, we could just train anybody to be a product manager. And it kind of gets into this conversation about like, if anybody can learn product management, that's great. What is it at the end of the day, right? Like, what do you need to do to be a great product manager? Or how do you separate out people? And I I would say I think this specifically becomes an issue when it's leadership. And you transitioning into executive coaching, having been a product leader for so long, I want to get your perspective on this. I think we need a lot of entry points for people who've never done product management before to be a junior product manager, to work their way up into a senior product manager and become product leadership. So I see nothing wrong with moving into these roles from a different, different area and doing that. But I've also seen a shift in these companies who've adopted Agile where they bring in leaders who've never done product management before at all. What could you see, I guess, you know, having been in product for so long, working at a lot of these companies that are extremely good at doing product management, what could you see as the pitfalls of jumping into a leadership position over product without ever having done it before? Because I think people get into this war, I hear it as, well, as long as I know strategy, it doesn't really mean I need to know how to build a feature.
0: It really shocks me when you say that. We talked about this before we jumped in the podcast, like the notion that you would hire somebody to lead a product team that had never done a product before just sort of blows my mind. And it's a little bit, you know, I obviously have a very Silicon Valley, maybe parochial mindset. Most of my experience has been in venture funded companies here in Silicon Valley. Most of my clients work for venture funded companies or startups. And I know there's sort of these different, different places and different stages, but I see completely the opposite. I see Product leaders being asked to become more general managers. This has been a trend that I've seen over the past several months to a year, where people that have been primarily directors, VPs of product now asked to run entire lines of business, which is almost sort of the opposite of what you're talking about, which is sort of business owners now being asked to run product without any experience. There's a great book called Flatland. Have you read that book? It's from the 1800s. It's like a Victorian book, as if by a mathematician whose name will come to me here, I'm sure when I'm talking. And it's about Two dimensional world. And so there's this creature that lives in a two dimensional world. And obviously, to him, everything's like a point or a line. Edwin Abbott is the name of the the author. And he's visited by a, a sphere from a three dimensional world. And when the sphere from the three dimensional world visits Flatland, he obviously only shows up as a circle. Part of what's fun about the book is the two dimensional creature is trying to understand what a three dimensional world is like. And it's almost unfathomable. And the three-dimensional creature is trying to understand what a two-dimensional world is like in its unfathomable to them. And sometimes I feel like we have that distinction in the product world where it's almost like we're talking two different worlds, two different languages. And you know, this is what often what Marty Kagan calls like empowered product teams versus unempowered product teams. And it's like, I'll hear stories of companies doing things like bringing in product leaders that have never built product before. And it just sort of blown, I can't imagine that that possibly exists. But then you talk to people in those worlds and they sort of don't believe that we build software the way we build software out here. And so I think there is this sort of almost two different worlds it feels like in product. And, you know, I'll come across people on Twitter and it's just, it almost feels like we're speaking two different languages. And so when you say this trend of people putting leaders into product leadership position, never built product before, it just, I can't understand it any more than I can understand three-dimensional creature visiting my my two-dimensional world. So it shocks me a lot. When we think about your first question about getting into product, I have strong opinions of this. I think product management is fundamentally an apprenticeship type role, right? It's just something you don't, you have to learn how to do by seeing it done, by watching it. And it builds on a lot of other skills. And so naturally people come to product From engineering, from marketing, from design, sort of having that functional experience, sort of knowing how products are built, knowing how stuff gets done, and then moving into sort of a product role, which is almost like an advanced layer on some of these other capabilities. So the problem is there are very few apprenticeship opportunities. There are a handful of them. There are associate product manager type roles. But yet so many people are wanting product management to be their first job. And there's a lot of professions that are like that, electricians, there's tons and tons of professions that are fundamentally the type of thing you can only learn by doing. And so they're set up to allow for people to move, to learn, to become apprentices, to eventually sort of graduate to full-time roles. So I think we'll need to do more of that per product, or people will need to appreciate that it isn't something you can just jump straight into. You need to learn by doing. So, you know, sort of a little bit of a roundabout kind of answer here, but I am a little bit troubled by this trend toward everybody wanting to get into product because I think it has created this sort of preponderance of people that are desperate to get this job without the apparatus around them to help them be good at the job, to help them learn it and help train them. And it sounds like that's happening both for entry level folks and for senior leaders.
1: Yeah. So I have a lot of MBA students who want to be product managers. And I've worked with a lot of companies where we're training people to be product managers. And I think it's funny because once people do become product managers, I also find a lot of people don't want that job. They thought it was something different than it actually was and I, I thought it was funny. I was working with Athena Health and we we're taking you know a couple hundred people and training them up in product management I also hired in a bunch of experienced product leaders to help them coach them and oversee them, which was great. but by the time that a lot of the the people who were working on the teams went through the training they said, Actually, want to do this? (laughs) You know, they came back and they said, "This is not really what I want to do. I don't like this type of work." And i I think people take that for granted, like how hard the job is and what it actually entails. Like they have this just big, like Steve Jobs mentality with it of, "Oh, we're going to do all the cool things and we're going to make all the decisions," and that's just not it in the reality at all.
0: Yeah, I think one of the worst things that was ever done to the craft of product management was calling it the CEO of the product, cause that created a perception of what the job is that that is inaccurate. And also I think I ended up luring a lot of people into the job to think they were gonna do something that they weren't. I have a friend who's a journalist and they were marveling about the same thing, which is journalists, especially in movies, you know, you think about all these wonderful movies where journalists are perceived as, you know, meeting people in garages and breaking incredible stories. And, and it's, I guess, very common for my friends that are journalists, for people within their first couple of years to be like, wait, this isn't, job isn't what I thought it was at all. It's basically just being stuck on deadline and having writer's block. I want out. So again, I think an apprenticeship type model lets you do that. Part of the challenge here is you can only learn the job by doing the job and you can only figure out if you want to do the job by doing the job. And so everything is sort of asked backwards right now. We're sort of forcing you to break in through the back door and then there's no one to teach you the job and you find out it's not as rewarding as you think it is. And I can imagine product management is even worse if you've never learned good product management from anyone.
1: Yeah. It's hard exactly. enough as it is. Yeah. And the one thing that you were saying kind of makes me worry too, because I, I haven't seen that trend as much and I want to dive in a little bit there. But the product leaders becoming GMs. One of the biggest issues I've seen with the apprenticeship model is that so many places don't hire in experienced product leaders to help train all those people, right? In tons of companies and even SaaS companies too, like I've seen this in a lot of scale ups as well that are venture backed. I work with a bunch of them and they hired in a bunch of really smart people and made them product managers, but they never hired in a leader to oversee it. And usually when you're early enough, you can do that and correct the path. But sometimes people hire too many, right? People who have never done it before. And now they've got so many people there that they have to train up. There's no room. To bring in more people that they have to train up. So it's like we've got senior product managers who are not really product like senior product managers or more like junior product managers. They have nobody to learn from and it becomes this whole cycle. And I hear from the CEOs and from the leadership teams like, oh, it's just so hard to hire a product leader. And now I'm worried hearing from you because I'm curious what you're seeing with that GM role there that we're not going to have a lot of purely product leaders or enough people to oversee that if everybody's turning them into GM business leaders.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot there. The too many PMs thing, I agree. One of my biggest pieces of feedback and advice to really early career PMs is to pick a boss. I was very fortunate to be surrounded early in my career and for different parts of my career by really strong product leaders. A lot of them were founders. A lot of them were senior product leaders. And so I got to learn from people who'd done it before who knew how to think about what the job entailed. And I can't imagine not having had that. And to your point, there are just not a lot of product leaders in, in general, right? I think if we if we look at the, the universe of engineering leaders, there's way, way fewer product leaders. There's fewer product managers than there are engineers. Same probably goes for designers. So already you've got a smaller pool of people that you're even selecting from. So I don't think that there's a vast number of people out there who really are have a proven record of being able to lead product teams, not just manage products, but to lead product teams. And so that there just aren't a lot of people that have done this before and know how to do it. To your question, I think part of what I've seen, the trend that I've seen toward a lot of these types of roles evolving into more general manager type roles, I think is, is twofold. I think it's a maturity of product leadership, a recognition of how important and critical that job is, and a sort of... A lot of those people that are in those types of product leadership jobs seeing and and wanting to move more into eventually becoming CEOs. And so it's a sort of a natural combination of, you know, hey, we're going to just give you the entire line of business to run. We're going to give you P&L. You're going to have the entire team. Everyone's going to report to you as both a sort of natural evolution of the types of leaders that are in these jobs. And I think also just a sense of your next step is probably going to be CEO. This is an opportunity for the company that is fast growing to try to retain some of these people that maybe they would have jumped off and become CEO somewhere else. And so a lot of big companies, and Google has been doing this a lot, big companies like Dropbox, there are a lot more of these types of GM roles where if you look at who's populating them, there are people that have been in product leadership roles. And so I think that's a good trend because I think it definitely sets these folks up to being able to own and, and manage more of the business. And ultimately for those that want to become CEOs, it's a logical step. But yeah, I mean, in terms of like the pool of product leaders, like that, it's an additional depletion of the number of people that really are, I think, are fully qualified to take on a, a chief product officer or VP of product job. They're just not the very many people that have done that job or are capable of doing that job.
1: Yeah. I like part of me is really excited because I feel like a lot of people don't see product roles as partly a business role too. It's mostly a business role, I'd I'd say. So that transition of being a product person and moving into a GM role, I'm like, yay, those companies get it. They see how important product is to the business. Like That makes a lot of sense. And on the other hand, I'm like, oh, but where are all the product leaders going to go if they all want to become GMs? So I see both sides of that and that makes me nervous, but I'm curious from for you too, you had been a product leader, worked at Google for a long time, and now you're doing executive coaching and not specifically product leadership coaching, from what I understand, more like general executive coaching. What made you want to go that path?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. So I coach executives, many of whom are product leaders. And so I certainly coach lots of chief product officers, VPs of product. I also coach a lot of CEOs, founders, non-product sort of product people. But these mostly folks who are executives. I think for me, it was wanting to do the work that I found most fulfilling as a product leader, which is to help deeply connect with people and develop them and help them get better at their job, help them just grow as human beings, help them reach their full potential. And for a long time, I didn't really understand that that was part of what I loved about my job. I, I've written about this a little bit, but i I would really love when I was managing a very small team, maybe like two or three PMs, and I was a little bit of a player coach and I was getting to to build product and also manage. And then eventually I I would get promoted or my team would grow. And then I would feel like I had too many people. And what I thought was that I hated management. The way I would have described it to you is just like, I don't like being a manager. I don't like managing. But that wasn't it at all. It was as I started to manage bigger and bigger teams, I had less opportunity to do the work that I found most fulfilling, which is coaching and growing people, just because there's too many people. It's just my team was too big. I didn't get to do that very much. And so as I sort of began to understand what it is I loved most, what I missed the most, I started to recognize that it is this deep investment in the growth of other people. And so that naturally led me to do coaching more. That I did more of that in my days at Google Ventures. I got an opportunity to do that with the portfolio. When the pandemic happened, I was like, OK, I'm ready for something new. What if I just did that full time? So that kind of what brought me into it. So, you know, I work with about 20 leaders at a time. These are folks that are, you know, again, lots of CEOs, lots of founders, lots of chief product officers, VPs of product, some at big companies like Google and Facebook, some at startups, very early stage. And my full-time job is to work with them to help support and, and help them grow and achieve whatever it is they want to achieve. And it's incredibly rewarding. And I and I think because I I coach the whole person, we we certainly talk about, product related things and product leadership related things, but ultimately I'm helping them grow and develop as humans, as leaders. And so my interests probably are, I would say maybe a little bit more around what does leadership mean than the product side of it, but certainly, that's a component of it.
1: So when you talk about like coaching the whole person too, what types of things do you see executives need to consider instead of just, you know, the product pieces or the tactical components of their job? What are other components that they need to be successful in their role?
0: Yeah, it's it's everything. And again, because I'm coaching people, it, it differs from person to person. There's questions of just authenticity and what type of leader do you want to be? A lot of leaders I work with are merging into a stage of their adulthood where they're starting to program their own sense of what leadership looks like and less of following a pattern or an archetype that they may have been familiar with at some point in time. And so there's a, a sort of a stretching and a development that happens when you start to kind of understand that who I want to be as a leader needs to be authored by me. And it's not just a composite of all the different leaders I've seen. Sometimes that's a struggle because sometimes it requires confronting a way that you saw that leaders worked and sort of re- understanding that it may not work for you. Inspiring in leading others confronting really difficult challenges, you know, just sort of all the types of things that come up for these leaders that I work with from managing the dynamic of the board of directors to just balancing their own work and life and family and, you know, children, or if they have them and just really trying to figure out who they want to be and how they want to navigate. I spent a lot of time helping leaders begin to understand what it means to lead lead from vision and purpose and to move away from leading reactively where you're sort of, retreating to a place of fear and anxiety and you're sort of responding to threats and this way most of us have been taught and that's often the way most of us get promoted is that sort of agitation related reactive way of being but it becomes self-limiting when you become a leader and you start to need to lead more expressively you need to start to lean in more into vision and purpose and so that's a lot what we work on with leaders but it really runs the gamut and because i'm a pure executive coach i don't bring topics to the conversation my client brings what is meaningful to them that day when we meet. And so it could be anything. It could be a myriad of different things. But ultimately, most of the challenges come back to people, which is why if you've ever read any of my writing about product management, I keep reinforcing this, hammering this point over and over and over. Product stuff's fun. You know, deciding like what to build. That's cool. Process, that's you know, it's interesting. Shipping, like getting stuff out the door. That's all great. But it's all about people. It's all about getting the most out of people, bringing the best out of people, resolving conflict, creating creative conflict as necessary, and inspiring and getting a group of people to want to build something amazing together. That's the hardest part about the job. That's ultimately what we spend a lot of our time on.
1: It's funny because I also feel like that's the reason why a lot of people opt out once they get into product management. They didn't realize how much people, parts of it, went in there, and I don't think a lot of people either thrive in that area or want to be in that area, which is totally fine. But yeah, it's not just about being the person who dictates. I've seen that be really hard for leaders too. And what you were just talking about, becoming not a reactive leader, but a purpose and visionary leader, that transition, I think I've seen be extremely hard no matter what leader you are, whether you're a chief product officer or CEO or COO, because you've been so good at your job up until then, which was so execution oriented now you have to change the way that you approach it. How do you try to get people out of a reactive mode? Why do you think people fall into that reactive mode when they're leaders first? And then what types of things have you seen be successful in trying to get them out of that and to step up and reevaluate where they are now?
0: Yeah. Well, the reason we're there is because that's how the human brain is hardwired going back to the earliest days of evolution, set up to respond to environmental threats. That's how we survived. It's just looking out there, seeing a threat, fight or flight, responding to it. And so it's just sort of the nature of how human brains are working. It also is how we became successful in our jobs, how we got promoted. If your first job was all about stressing over making your boss happy and making sure every single T was crossed and I was dotted and living in constant fear that you weren't getting it right, congratulations, you probably got promoted. That's how sort of that reactive mindset is how we learn the job, how we achieve. The challenge is that although it can be effective, it becomes costly. And especially as you become more of a senior leader, that sense of just reacting to the world around living in a place of fear and anxiety and wanting to be right and Looking for victims and villains, like all that sort of everything that goes with that begins to come with a severe cost, and oftentimes that cost is to you your own psychological capability to the people around you but ultimately it's just not it's not how you lead purposeful inspiring teams, and so there's a shift that's required. this is from the the world of adult development, and this goes back to some of the work of. Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy, and a lot of researchers who've looked at adult stage development and sort of how we continue to make meaning and and how we naturally as adults continue to reprogram how we respond to the world. And so, this is part of that. The way you help someone through this journey is you can't take somebody through this journey. This is inner work. So, you can't just like, okay, great, here's three things to do. Now you're out of it, is to sort of help them appreciate where how they are leading might be limited where a different way of leading might be less limited, to begin to sort of help them notice when they're leading reactively versus when they're leading more creatively, to sort of help them connect, understand emotions, great connector into a lot of this, to help them confront inner critics that might be sources of some of that fear, help them step into confidence and be able to lead more purpose-driven. It's a journey that's not a light switch kind of thing. It's not like you wake up and you're like, great, now I'm. A-. no, it's not. It may take years It may many adults may never make it through this transition. We know this. The research tells us that some 70% of leaders are reactive leaders. So this is the default path. But through coaching and through sort of challenge and inner work and confronting some of these challenges, you can begin to see a brighter light and you can begin to see, hey, when I respond this way, when I lead this way, it's more effective. It makes me happier. People are more inspired. People want to be a part of it people enjoy their jobs more. I'm happier. <laughs> I'm less stressed out. I'm less anxious. So that's a lot of what we sort of work on together. But, you know, we know it's more effective. We have all sorts of research and data to tell us that, you know, when you're leading from more creative, capability, when you're leading from vision and purpose, you are leaning into being curious, you're willing to learn, you're willing to be wrong, better things happen. But it is a it's a practice to get you to that place where you begin to see the world that way.
1: So one question I get from people all the time, and I don't know if there's a good answer to this, but love your perspective. I get a lot of individual contributors or, you know, directors of product, mid-level people who go, I can see my executive is extremely reactive. You know, they just keep dictating solutions to me. I keep trying to poke and ask the why and get into the root of it. But they're reprioritizing all the time and it looks like they're scared and I don't know how to bring up to them that they're doing this. Or can I even say that, you know, I'm worried about having these conversations. When you are working with executives who are trying to make the shift, you know, how do they come to the awareness that they need to? And if you were somebody on a team, is there anything that you could do to maybe surface this up or help point somebody in the right direction?
0: A lot of the leaders I work with are, Leaders in the company, and so they're fundamentally—if they're accountable to anyone, it might be a CEO or it might be a board—and so they have more creative direction to determine the culture of the organization and sort of how things operate. So they're they're less sort of beholden to a boss that may run them a certain way. As part of the joy I get from this work is knowing that these leaders do have a lot more creative control over their environments, right? Because they can be like, "Well, that sounds great, but this is how it's done, and there's not much I can do about it." I think it is, for many people, you might be in an environment, and you probably are an environment that is a very reactive environment. Whenever you hear somebody's, my boss keeps saying, we keep missing deadlines. You're like, okay, it just told me a lot about how that company works. (laughs) And it told me a lot about how you operate and the fear-driven environment that you're a part of. There's work you can do to try to change the environment and to push back on the environment and to show (laughs) that there's a better way of working. You can certainly maybe create air bubbles for you and your team to operate in a certain way. But ultimately, if you're a mid-level a product leader, an individual contributor at a company, and and this entire way of operating is this way, it's probably going to be very hard to change it. Now, the awakening you might have is to start to realize there might be a better way, and maybe that is somewhere else, and now you know how to find it. There's a lot of people that I talk to as a sort of a recognition that like, I didn't believe it was possible to have a different type of environment. Now I know, now I want that. I'm going to go look for it. It's not here. That might be fine. Or maybe you need to step into more of a type of a challenger role where you are going to push back a little bit and try to create space and room for a different way of operating. Oftentimes that requires maybe a grand bargain, you know, where, hey, you know, for the next six months, let us do it this way. You're going to lay off. You're going to stop telling us what to build. You're going to stop driving us to deadlines, give us an opportunity to show you that we can deliver something amazing for our users, just give us some space. And if we don't, then we can re-talk about it. And so there's sometimes this sort of back and forth to let us be a little bit more creative, which is, it brings tears to my eyes because there's people like desperately asking for the ability to build amazing products that satisfy what their users need. It, you know, it's almost despite the organization's resistance. But, you know, I believe that there can be some progress. But I also think that for a lot of people, I think fundamentally you might confront the reality of the environment you're in and and realize that it may not create the space for you to be able to build products the way you want to build the products and may not create space for you to be able to lead the way you want to lead. And the the consequence that might be, it's time to go somewhere else.
1: I'm glad I'm not the only person telling people that. (laughs) I always feel bad saying that, but I also like can't come up with another answer because I've told executives at one point when they asked me to help them hire product people, I said, You don't deserve product people if you're gonna keep operating that way. Like if you're gonna hire in somebody good, you gotta you gotta treat them right so that they stay. And I can't on good faith recommend people to this company if that's the way that you want to lead or this is the way that you're going to pigeonhole them into this job. So yeah, I'm I'm totally with you on that one.
0: I wanna be careful. I don't want to create the sense that there's like good companies, bad companies. It's like it's Disneyland over here and it's hell over here. It's not. And, and every company's got its strengths and weaknesses. And I worked at Google for 14 years and there were things that it just infuriated me about that place and frustrated me. And I would wish that had been done differently. But fundamentally, there's going to be things that are going to hold you back and frustrate you. So I don't, anybody that's listening to this is like, oh, there's parts of my job I don't like. I guess I'm at a, one of these bad companies. I don't think that's the yeah. case at all. But do you feel like you have the room to be able to, to do incredible things and you and your team are able to tap into your creativity and purpose and vision and you're able to connect directly with customers and users and understand what they want and build that and test it. And those are sort of the raw ingredients that we're talking about here. And for a lot of people, it seems like these companies are just not hardwired to allow that.
1: Yep, totally agree. So you were at Google for a long time and you saw a lot of different areas. How do you feel like space was created for you to go out and do amazing things because like you built google docs you built google calendar like literally use it every day (laughs) and those are fantastic tools and they really changed i think how people collaborate and work and do different things so when you're looking back on you know product management at google what do you think were some good things that google did that whether you're b2b or b2c company like people need to embrace and do with product management especially with leadership
0: yeah, there's a there's probably a lot there and, and it's hard to break it down to its parts because it, it was complicated. And I also feel like you may take all those parts, reformulate them and fail because there was just something, whatever, the timing, the people, the founders, whatever. The things that I always appreciated as a product manager and as a product leader at Google was a sense of ownership and empowerment. You know, I remember thinking, going into these meetings with like, Larry, Sergey, Eric, these you know, leaders where you're presenting a product plan. I remember feeling like if we're all on the same page, like my tech lead, me, my design lead, or my engine director, me, you know, it really did feel like if the team that is building this product is unified and on the same page and passionate about something, that it didn't really feel like there was a lot that was going to stand in our way. They might challenge us to look at something different. They may push us, often push us to think bigger, right? It was much more of like, this isn't big enough, go bigger. This is inspiring. It needs to be more. But it really did feel like we as an you know, as a team of people that are building this product, we're sort of empowered to decide what's the best thing to build, what's the best way to accomplish what it is we're going to accomplish. And at Google, you know, we famously use OKRs, which meant, you know, we were accountable to a big objective, which is something that was a big picture, ambitious way to express what we were all about. But it was up to us to figure out how to connect the dots, right? So at Google, it was like, we want to see you on the summit of Mount Everest by this time next year and go at it, right? And it was up to us to go, wow, that seems crazy and ambitious. The summit by this time next year? I don't know. What should we do? When should we build it? Should we climb? Should we fly? Should we build a helicopter? Let's try this. Let's try, you know. So we were the ones that felt like we were fully accountable and in charge of the how. And that was really inspiring, right? Because it was like, nobody was gonna say, and oh, and by the way, by this time next week, you have to have all your gear lined up. Oh, and by this time next month, you better have base camp number one identified, we wanna sign off on it. That's how most companies are built. It was just like, next year, this time, something to Mount Everest, go. And there was also a sense that this is ambitious, if this time next year we're at 26,000 feet, that's a pretty inc- incredible, right? So it wasn't a like, oh, and you have to hit your deadlines. You have to hit your goals. It was, we're going to set something big, audacious, and it's up to you to figure out how to get there. And so there wasn't ever a time where I felt like somebody was undermining me, second guessing me, micromanaging me. Oftentimes, frankly, my frustrations were the opposite, which is like, I kind of would love them to care more about, you know, can I get more time? I'd love to wait. You know, it's like, it would be fun to get more than 15 minutes with my SVP every three weeks. But the benefit of it was we had a lot of empowerment and we had a lot of control over what got built. And that was very inspiring because it really felt like it was just us, just this 15-person, 20-person, 30-person team.
1: How do you have leaders give those big lofty goals but also not overwhelm the teams? Because one thing that I've observed is sometimes leaders think they're doing that, right? Like they think they're coming in and being like, get to Mount Everest summit you know, by next year but they do something. I don't know if they're doing that, but like they do something and the teams go, oh my God, I don't even know where to start, right? It's like so nebulous. It's so out there that I see teams like panic and they don't even know how to take step number one towards it. And sometimes I will say that is a lack of skill on the team and they just need more coaching and training and you need to get there. And then other times I have seen it where the leaders have been so like vague about what they actually are expecting, that anything the team does is just not correct. So how do you kind of balance that visionary aspect, right? The, the big pushes, the go for it, go win like this crazy thing and not be extremely vague about it or too wide of a net that you're casting.
0: Well, the leaders have to know where they're going, right? So in some of these cases, it sounds like the leaders don't know.
1: That's fair, they're not yeah. on the
0: same page. That's important. And we were always blessed with having great leaders at Google, visionary leaders that were smart, ambitious, capable. Part of the ingredient is what are the consequences if you don't? You know, it was like, you need to hit the summit of Mount Everest. And if you don't, you're fired or your bonus depends on it. Or if you get 70% of the way there, you get 70% of the bonus. Then, you know, you're naturally sort of connecting your own sort of personal future Personal progress, personal pay to these outcomes. You're not going to be as ambitious. You're going to sand that. You're going to be like, yeah, that one's too ambitious because if the consequences are I don't get my bonus, then I'm not going to do it. So there has to be that kind of separation, this acceptance of mistakes, the psychological safety of being able to say you failed or to be able to tack or change direction. Part of what comes up though when you say this is it doesn't feel like there's a lot of candor and two way conversation there because you know as I'm reflecting back to these conversations, you know. Eric Schmidt would be like, you need to get here. And I didn't understand it. I'd be like, I need to understand that more. (laughs) I need more specifics. I wouldn't just march off and be like, oh no, I guess we're screwed. It's like that old Seinfeld episode where George's boss gives him an order and he didn't quite hear it. And he spends the next months trying to figure out guess, like, go back to your boss and say, well, what do you want? I don't understand it. So there might be a lack of trust oftentimes in these organizations being filtered down through 17 different levels. And so there's some CEO who's giving dictates, it's being translated, and ultimately the teams are understanding what it's all about. Really, you should be following your customers and users anyway here. And so maybe I the shortcoming of that Climb Mount Everest example is it really comes from customers and users, right? So wherever it is you're getting should in some way connect back to what you believe that customers or users need, even if they're not capable of telling you because they don't know yet. So I think that was also part of what was powerful about Google was really a sense of, our leaders understood they could see the future in ways that were really inspiring they could understand trends customer needs user needs and translate those into big outcomes that we could all aim for but if we were trying to climb Mount Everest and all the customers were in the Black Sea like then they wouldn't have mattered and so you have to have that connection as well
1: so when you're talking about climb Mount Everest in like a Google context too what would be like a one of the big goals that you worked on for that I think sometimes People get lost because we're like, oh yeah, we get the Mount, climb Mount Everest, but then they go, how does that work in a company? (laughs) You know, like, like, what does that goal actually translate to? What level does that look like in a company?
0: If I could think of some examples, the big, big, big goals, like when I was on Google maps was things like imagine a world where you never got lost. Okay. Everybody can imagine a world where you never got lost and everyone can immediately snap to how your life would be better if you never got lost. And also that can provide a lot of guidance around what you build, right? So if you're looking at potential things to build in maps and one of them is all about, you know, traffic routing, all about more granular location tracking from a 10 meter to a one meter, like, okay, well, that definitely connects to not getting lost, that makes sense. Organize the world's information, make it universally accessible and useful, which is Google's grand arching mission is a good example of this. You know, sometimes it was in the context of, things that we felt we needed to do as an organization. And it was up to the team to figure out how to do it. So I remember one year, a company OKR was a single unified experience at Google. And the reason for that was we were shipping our org chart. The settings and when I was on calendar were totally different than the settings on Gmail. There were seven different places you could set your time zone and they all felt different. And Larry was like, look, we got to feel like we're one product. So Big annual OKR for us is a single unified experience across Google. What that means, do we start with the toolbar? Do we start with set? Like That's sort of up to us, but we could picture what the outcome meant. And Larry held us accountable to that. And when there were other things that were getting in the way, we were able to remind ourselves that was something the company had decided was important and we should prioritize that. And if somebody asked me for something that had nothing to do with a single unified experience across Google, I could say. Hey, I'm sorry, I'm working on this. This is the number one goal for the company. So those are maybe the the Everest equivalents. Those were then translated into quarterly OKRs and obviously then translated into what we're building right now. But those were the, the North Stars that we were aiming toward that were unifying all of us around what really truly mattered. And then also in a way that was concrete enough where it could guide you day to day. It wasn't so obscure that it didn't actually hit the ground and translate into... Something that was meaningful.
1: Yeah, I love those. Those are great examples and really good tangible things that you can grab onto and go, "Oh yeah, that's so broad." I could see how people can get to Google Maps, but you're not being super specific about how you get there. It's like something that we can all rally behind.
0: By the way, you don't get you don't get lost anymore.
1: Yeah, you don't. I, I know. <laughs>
0: Those of us that are old enough to remember, like, finding a payphone and being like, uh, I don't know where I am, but I, I see a gas station, then there's a road called oh, Highway yeah. 6. And where's your house again? Like, gone.
1: When I was learning to drive, my dad used to be like, Okay, so if you want to get to the grocery store, you go up two streets and then you make a right. And then when you see that weird looking tree, you're going to turn left. And then you're going to go up towards the White House and then you make another right. And you give like 36 step directions. And I'm like, I can't remember all this. <laughs> and now I'm thinking, Oh my God, like, I. I just open up Google Maps and I go wherever I want to go now.
0: I remember meeting my friends at a festival and it it would take like half the day before you finally found them. You know, it's like Lollapalooza and it's like finally 2 p.m. And you're like, there you are. think it's like, yeah. So, hey, we're not lost anymore.
1: Amazing. That's like really cool. I love that way that you create the world in your head too, through that vision. So I guess too, for final parting thoughts, you know, we're in Q4. I think a lot of management teams, a lot of executives right now, they're thinking about this. They're thinking about the vision and the North Star and how they want to rally the teams for next year. What's your advice for them on how to think about a good North Star and how to really set people up for success? Hmm.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think part of it is to believe that if you paint a picture, that you can in- inspire other people. I think there is this sense that it needs to be translated into steps. And and I think sometimes it is maybe just not believing that's possible or maybe it is a little bit of infantilizing of the team or, you know, all oh, these people are too stupid unless I translate it into exactly what to build, they won't know. So it really has to come from trust. There is this sort of weird thing that happens with, a, with the word vision where it's like implied that it's like something comes down from the mountains, you know, in the tablets, or it's just like synthesized from the ether. And that, you know, I think there is this sort of, magical sense that some people are just so gifted they can see the future. No, actually, that's most of these types of things and not that. It is people looking at real evidence, drawing a conclusion about where trends are going, connecting to a user need, seeing a possibility, seeing an opportunity and translating into a story that other people can rally around. So one thing I would say is anyone is capable of putting forth a vision that is going to inspire and get other people excited about it. It isn't something that you're born with. It's not like it's Steve Jobs and two other people. No, anybody can do this. And I think really what you want to be doing is you want to be telling a story around the future that you want to be in. So it's like, come with me to the future. Imagine this has happened. This is what's different. This is what it will be like. This is where the opportunities will be created. This is what our users will be saying. And then worry less around a painting of a picture of how to get there and focus more on telling the story of what it's like when you get there you want your team to get to the beach to get to Miami. and it's like you know don't don't tell them it's miami beach and then don't tell them exactly what route to take like tell a story about what it's like to be on the beach what's the sun going to feel like what it's going to be like what are we going to do on the beach what's going to be like think about how fun that'll be beaches are awesome and leave it up to the team to figure out how to get to the beach because maybe it turns out that we don't go to Miami Beach. Maybe we go to a beach in California, and it turns out that's a better route. It's a more effective route. Your job as somebody who's setting the vision and telling a story is paint the picture of the beach. What's that going to be like? Get excited about the beach. Get everybody really motivated. Understanding the beach is the right place. Then leave it up to them to figure out how to get there.
1: I think that's really good advice for everybody, especially as they're thinking about what do I do next year. And- how do I motivate my team? Because I know that's definitely a struggle. So thank you so much, Ken, for being on the podcast. If people want to learn more about your work, read your writing, sign up for executive coaching, where do they go?
0: Yeah. Bringthedonuts.com. It's my, my home on the World Wide Web. You can also find me on Twitter at Kenneth N. But if you go to bringthedonuts.com, you can get in touch with me any way possible.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. And for those of you listening, we'll have another episode of the Product Thinking Podcast next Wednesday, as always. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review and let us know and make sure that you subscribe so that you never miss an episode. We'll see you next time.